it's hard to raise children. You know, it's wonderful. It's deeply meaningful. It's incredibly joyful. It can also be very stressful and also boring. And I think that, you know, we need to acknowledge that and find ways, you know, to cope with that, that don't, you know, have to do with resorting to devices. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-Word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. For all the returning listeners, I'm glad you're joining us for another fascinating conversation. For the new listeners, welcome. I'm glad you stopped by. During this fascinating conversation with Dr. Susan Lin, I felt myself feeling frustrated, anxious, and upset, yet hopeful. Hopeful that we have wonderful people in our world like Dr. Lin, who are activists who are passionately working towards helping the greater good. In this conversation, we talk about how Dr. Lin's activist work is focused on how large tech, large corporations, and the consumerism culture is impacting how our kids are being raised and how they view money. From toys, apps, games, screens, and the list goes on, marketers are fighting a fierce war on how they can best capture our kids' and our youth's attention and hold it for a lifetime. Dr. Lin discusses that some corporations, this is their ultimate payoff, is capturing our kids' attention for a lifetime. Dr. Lin is a psychologist and author, an award-winning ventriloquist who is actually on Mr. Rogers' TV show, She's a world-renowned expert in creative play and is actively fighting the impact of tech and commercial marketing on children. Her books have been described as engrossing and insightful. Her latest book called Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech, Big Businesses, and the Lives of Children has been described as engrossing and insightful. During this conversation, we talk about how big tech is capturing this attention of our children. We also speak about her previous book called Consuming Kids, Protecting Our Children from the Onslaught of Marketing and Advertising. For all of us who have kids and for all of us who have observed youth, we can see that this is indeed a war on their attention. So I highly encourage you, listen to this conversation because This is something that we're all facing is how do we prevent our youth's attention from being grabbed by these large corporations? Be sure to stick through the whole episode as Dr. Lin really provides some tangible things that we can do to help our youth. Well, I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Susan Lin. Sue 
Susan, welcome to the show. Sean, I'm so happy to be here with you. You know, it's it's a pleasure. Karen Holland, who was a previous guest on the show, recommended that I reached out to you, and I'm glad this worked out because as I was, oh, I am too. As I was digging into your work and preparing for today, I felt fascinated, disturbed, curious, anxious about wow. the stuff that I was reading. And I know for many of our listeners who have kids who may be feeling the same feelings I have around big tech companies, who's raising our children as your book is titled. So I'm really excited to have you today. On our podcast, we really dive into the more humanistic side of money. We kind of explore our money, our minds, and what matters most. And I think as parents raising children in ways that really help enable them to be the best children they can, your conversation is extremely important. Before we get into the books, before we get into your activism work you've been doing, as a child, I grew up watching Mr. Rogers' show. Oh, you did? I did, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And you were on the show as a ventriloquist. You have been the first ventriloquist on this podcast who's actually, from what I understand, you made it living for a while as a ventriloquist. Let's start out with how did Susan become a ventriloquist and what was that like to earn a living as a ventriloquist? Let me answer the last part first. I feel very fortunate to have been able to align my work with my values and my interests. I mean, that is just so lucky. And I'm, I'm just incredibly grateful for that. And I became a ventriloquist as a child. Most ventriloquists actually began as children. I was six. Ironically, I saw a ventriloquist on television. I wanted to do it. So my mother got a book out of the library for me that was for kids. And just luckily, at the same time, a family friend gave me a sock puppet. And that's how I began. Wow. One sock po- puppet and right. creates a career out of it. Yeah. And when I was 11 or so, I had a year of coaching from a professional ventriloquist who was all of 23. I mean, he seemed like <laughs> such a grown up to me, but that was enormously helpful. And then, you know, I was doing performances as a child. And I just continued that, you know, throughout my adult life, actually. Well, if we ever do a round two, maybe we can uh, have you as a puppet doing the the podcast. Yeah, I could have (laughs) my puppet, Audrey Duck, here. That's right. Audrey Duck? That's the... Yes. Ah, very, very interesting. And then you landed, you found yourself on the Mr. Rogers Show. What was that like? When I was 19, I wrote to him. He was doing what I wanted to do. I mean, I always had a sense that I wanted to do something that was good for children. And so I went down to meet him, hoping he would say, come be on my show, you know. And he was extremely supportive, but he did not say that. And then a couple of years later, I got a letter. Remember letters? I got a letter from the producer of the show asking me to be on. And so I was on a couple of times a year for a while. And then I started doing videotapes about difficult issues 
with his production company. Basically, what you saw is what you got. I mean, he was a person. He was not a perfect person. Nobody is. But once when I was doing something, what he did is give me a, a problem and then I would work it out with my puppet. So I was grateful to him that he didn't write scripts for me. I could do my own work with my puppets. And he said, I finished something. He said, that was brilliant, Susan. And do you know why? Because you let you come out. So, I mean, he really, he just really was who he was on television. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that experience. And also, it's really too bad that the world doesn't have him or someone like him now. Mm-hmm. What a powerful statement. You let you come out. Right. I like that story is at the beginning, you talked about how you've been able to align your work with your values and interest, it's just a testament to when we become clear on what those values are, what those interests are, that, you know, at times life does allow us to create these sort of careers, if you call, well, no, it would be a career. So I think it's fascinating. It really does let the unfolding of letting yourself come out. Right. And so then, you know, you said the, the puppets started talking about difficult conversations as a father of two young children, four and a seven-year-old, I often have these difficult conversations, especially my seven-year-old, who's been interested in the tablets and the apps that come along with it. I understand that you've spent the last over 30 years as an activist trying to help educate people on the impact of big tech, big companies on our children. I thought we would rewind the clock back before those 30 years, what started leading you down the path to become really passionate to start acting as an activist to really discuss these challenging but important situations that our children found themselves in? So in the 1990s, I was raising a daughter at home. I was working with preschool children who had HIV, doing play therapy with puppets with them. And I began working with a child psychiatrist named Alvin Poussant, who had started a media center at a children's mental health center here in Boston. I, I was in the right place at the right time because I really began to feel we couldn't talk about media for children without talking about the marketing that was financing that media. And in the 90s, marketing to children was just escalating exponentially. So I could see it at home and I could see it in the kids that I was working with. I mean, I, I walked into my daughter's school and she went, you know, she attended a good elementary school. And I noticed, um, noticed on the bulletin board that was advertising their spring concert, which was an evening of Disney music. This is before I became an activist around marketing to kids, but I was horrified that the one body of music that kids were being sold every single day, that's what 
the school was promoting, and school shouldn't be that. School should be a place where kids are exposed to new things, where their horizons were expanding. I was the only parent who was concerned about this. That was really shocking to me that, you know, that it was just me. So that was an example. Or then it was a four-year-old at, at the Children's AIDS program who introduced me to Britney Spears. She had created a puppet nurse who was Britney Spears, and Britney Spears was taking care of her. So, you know, that was going on. And then I noticed that my public television station was suddenly having ads. So, you know, it was just all around me. And I grew up in a family of extremely progressive parents politically. Um, my mother was also a pioneer in early childhood education in the state of Michigan. So I grew up, first of all, thinking that or believing that I had an obligation to do something good for the world. And also it kind of absorbing the importance of children and a sense that we needed to always think about what's best for children. So I think it was that combination. And clearly advertising was not what was best for children. I mean, the values of marketers are not values that help kids. I mean, the values of, of marketing are, you know, first of all, that the things you buy will make you happy, which, you know, we know is not true in any kind of long-term sense. And also, me first, competition. And, and I'm not against, you know, competition in, in a blanket sort of way, but it needs not to be, you know, the priority. I mean, if you think about the values of democracy, those values don't fit into that. I mean, democracy thrives on creativity and kindness and cooperation, not on needing to be the only one on, on your block who has a particular toy or defining yourself by what you own. I think I kind of gave you a very long answer to that question, but that's kind of what was driving me just from the very beginning. And then to extend my answer even more, mm -hmm. in 1998, that's when Teletubbies <laughs> was imported from Britain by public television, and it was being marketed as um, being educational for babies when they had no evidence that it was educational. And that was the last straw for me. That's what turned me into an activist. Dr. Poussin and I, Alvin Poussin and I, wrote an article for a magazine called The American Prospect. And that was when Jerry Falwell was saying that, that Teletubbies was bad because Tinky Winky was gay, because one of the Teletubbies was carrying a purse. Tinky Winky was gay. So our argument was that the real problem with Teletubbies was not Tinky Winky's alleged sexual orientation. It was that it was being marketed to kids, connected with tons and tons of products, 
and with no evidence that it was beneficial for babies. And that's what began my activism around trying to mitigate the impact of commercialism and too much technology on children. Such a fascinating story. The depths and the layers of the complexity to what you just discussed is, I just, as you unravel it and as I was preparing for today, I just, it was exposing things that I knew intuitively, but I didn't pay, like, I didn't focus enough on it. And I'm thankful for your work because it is profound, the impacts. Thank you. In 2004, you released a book called Consuming Kids, Protecting Our Children from the Onslaught of Marketing and Advertising. So I, I thought we'd touch on here before moving on to your next book, but it appears this book was really about what you observed the impact of commercialism on children and pub, children's public health was. Could you maybe just discuss some of the key connections that you made between the two in your book? And interestingly, that was when it was television. Right, because it's 2004. Which seems kind of quaint now. Mm -hmm. um, but television was a you know very powerful and still is a very powerful persuader. So what the research was showing at the time is that advertising and market, marketing to kids, the commercialization of children's lives was a factor in so many problems facing children. Childhood obesity, eating disorders, precocious sexuality, youth violence, family stress, excessive materialism, and what was very dear to my heart, the undermining of creative play, which is the foundation of learning, creativity, constructive problem solving, and the capacity to wrestle with life to make it meaningful. The goal of the book was to point out the links between all of those problems. And the link was the unregulated advertising and marketing to kids, combined with what was a rapidly developing communication technologies. Yeah, wow. Just to think then that's 2004 and the how rapid change has happened now. You had social media into there and connected devices. Yeah, I mean, that was before smartphones. It was before social media. It was, you know, before tablets. Yeah, and it was bad then. Mm -hmm. it, what a powerful statement you have ha said here is undermining the creative play, the capacity to wrestle with life and make it meaningful. Online, what I was reading is you talked about, I can't remember where this was from, but the corporations are racing to stake their claim on the consumer group formerly known as children. The stark reality of that is like scary for me and I'm sure other listeners, but true. I mean, I can imagine these executives aren't in the boardroom trying to think about how do we facilitate a proper or how do we facilitate children to learn how to do authentic creative play? Rather, it's how do we keep them on our devices? What should parents be mindful of as we wrestle with this, I, this concept of, do we let them have these connected devices? Do we allow them screen time? There are a couple of things. And, and first of all, this is not a family problem. It's a problem for society. 
And I think it's important for everybody to understand this. And also, we don't publicize isn't exactly the right word, but people aren't educated about child development. I mean, really, human development should be taught in schools. I mean, in high school, or it should be, you know, a required course in college. And we don't provide information that is readily available about what children really need. The information that parents are getting about kids comes from marketing. It comes from the corporations. And the marketing is extremely you know, readily available. I mean, if you go to YouTube, for instance, and you Google videos for babies, or you search for rather videos for babies, what comes up are tons of videos that claim to be good for babies. That, you know, we can teach your baby to talk when in fact the research is that babies can't learn to talk from a machine. They need to be in relationship. Tons and tons of videos. We can quiet your crying baby. And the irony and, and, the, and what's really concerning about that is that probably the videos can quiet a crying baby because the baby just gets caught up and distracted in the video. But the problem with that is what we're doing is training kids to turn to screens for stimulation and soothing instead of, you know, help them or encourage them to do the most important thing, which is to develop, you know, relationships with the adults around them, to turn to the adults for soothing and then internalize that to be able to soothe them and amuse themselves. So, you know, we have all of these toys and, and videos all being marketed as educational, at least, you know, in the United States, and I expect in, in Canada, there's no regulation of that. Anything can be called educational. And of course, everything is educational. The problem is, what are the children learning? Wow. Yeah. Like that example of the soothing baby, it just, it takes away from one of the essential things of, you're saying that connection with the parent, but also the self-regulation within the child. Right. And I mean, you talk about these regulations that we don't have, but I was reading one of your articles. It was from a couple, few years ago, though, but it was just talking about how a high, high percentage at that time was about 86% of children 6 to 12 use YouTube. And there's been numerous violations of Children's Online Privacy Protection Act with complaints coming through and that they're collecting information with children under 13 years old without parents' consent. And it's just, it's mind-boggling that that's happening. Yeah. And in fact, it's, it's still going on on YouTube. There was just an article in the New York Times about a report that, that what Google is doing, that it connects to third-party websites and things like that, that are not Google but that collect information to children mm. from children without parental permission. And you can see how this just continues to cycle and perpetuate itself. Like you, you explained, this is like a systemic issue that we have, but these corporations are making more and more money because the viewers are just increasing. You speak about, you know, writing these unpacking videos and how popular they are. 
So they're getting millions of views, which obviously the person's getting advertising dollars. So that's why they like it. But yet we're taking away some fundamental development milestones that these children could be doing another way. Yeah. And and there are a couple of things about that. One is with the new technologies, the tech companies, I mean, their money comes from advertising. And basically they are in a war for our attention. And their goal is to keep all of us and our children glued to their device, their app, you know, whatever it is for as long as possible. And so without regard, you know, to what's best for kids or what, what's best for, for humanity. And the thing about the unboxing videos and also so much of what we see online is basically training children to become consumers. That's what they want. And companies talk about that cradle to grave brand loyalty. You know, if you get a child at four, you'll have that child for life. And so that is the goal. Children are once and future consumers. They're consumers now. And then by being constantly subjected to messages that they need the things you buy in order to be happy or in order to have fun, in order to have friends, you know, whatever, they're developing, they're being imbued with those values, that value. And today, in the midst of, you know, this terrible climate crisis, which is fueled by commercialism and consumerism, I mean, basically, we're encouraging kids to develop habits that, you know, really could, you know, just and will devastate the world. We're not going to be able to deal with global warming unless we deal with um, consumption. It's powerful. What we're against, these companies have grown so large and have in ways succeeded on their goals at captivating the children's attention. Let's go back to March 2020. From what I understand, you were sitting down to write Who's Raising Kids. You have decades of insight, work as an activist, trying to help the greater society understand how the impact of consumerism is happening on our children and to your book's title, Impacts How Kids Are Being Raised. How do you distill this into a, into a book in a way that us consumers can process it because I can only imagine there's a lot of inside of you that just wants to go out fighting and, <laughs> and, and like banging on doors. But instead you take, you know, this, this more productive approach by writing the book. So I guess my question is two-sided. As an activist, how do you stay so, I would say calm in, in order to write this book? And how do you deliver it in a way that people like myself who have young children can accept it in a relatable manner? One thing I'm, I'm really proud about, about who's raising the kids, is that it, the reviews have all talked about how readable it is. Um, it's not an, an academic book. I mean, it's got tons of citations because I want to make sure mm. 
I'm I'm being truthful, you mm-hmm. know, and that, that I'm not just going off <laughs> on some weird tangent or something. But it was very important to me to have it as much as possible to reflect conversation and and to be you know written in a conversational way and and I'm I'm proud of having been able to do that. The other thing is that it's not. I mean this isn't hopeless. And I think that's really important. And I think that the tech companies want us to believe that it's hopeless. And, and you know, I get that a lot. It's never going to change. You know, nothing's going to change. But activists are often, whatever the huge monolith that they're trying to do something about, the message is it's hopeless. I mean, one book that I really love is by Adam Hochschild, and it's called Bury the Chains. And I think anybody who wants to be an activist should read that book because it's about the 12 Quakers who, in the late 18th century, decided to end the African slave trade. And they did it. It took them 70 years, basically, to really completely end it. And I think that's a really important message. You know, activism activism takes time. Things don't happen right away. And in a way, you can never stop being an activist because there's always, you know, there's always greed. And, you know, we're always having to combat greed in some way. But there are things, you know, first of all, there are organizations that are really working hard to change things on a societal level. And I think, you know, that's really important. And one thing that parents can do is to support those organizations. The organization that I began in, I, I and my colleagues started in 2000, which was called Campaign for a Commercial Free Childhood, is now called Fair Play. I left the organization in 2015, and I'm just delighted at how much they have expanded and, you know, with the work that, that, that they are doing today. I mean, in the United States, there are actually bills in Congress that have bipartisan support, which is astonishing these days, that would limit the ways that companies target children. And in some senses, you know, prevent them from doing it unfairly. Not completely, but it would really, those bills would really help a lot. So I think that that's hopeful. Hopeful. I mean, when I began thinking about marketing to kids, people thought I was really crazy. And that's not the case anymore. And, you know, my organization or or the organization that I and my colleagues founded, it's not the only one these days. There are organizations all over the world that are working towards, you know, the goal of regulating tech companies and how they target children. I think that that's good news. But also there are things that parents can do in the meantime. It's not a level playing field. You know, one parent or one family in isolation can't combat a zillion dollar um, industry But there are things that parents can do. And one thing is the World Health Organization and a lot of pediatric organizations around the world 
are urging parents to have no screen time for babies. And that's really important. There's no evidence, you know, the babies benefit from technology. And also there's mounting evidence that it's harmful. And when I was talking about child development earlier, one of the things is that babies are born with, you know, millions of neurons and a lot of them aren't connected. That's why they're not born being able to walk and talk and, you know, all that. And basically what babies do and don't do in the first couple of years of their lives actually influence the architecture of the brain. And so, you know, that's why it's important to make sure that babies have lots and lots of time interacting with adults who love them, exploring the world with all of their senses. One of the things that irks me about those videos on YouTube is that now they're all being advertised as like sensory videos because sensory is now a buzzword for parents around, you know, babies. Sensory this, sensory that. Well, I mean, the only senses that babies are exercising would be sight and sound, not touch, taste, smell, you know, all those others. And what the research is suggesting is, first of all, that babies spending too much time with tech, that that can affect areas of their brain that are associated with executive function, which is the capacity to initiate a task and bring it to completion, and also self-regulation, which is, you know, the, the ability to control your impulses. And, and those are two really, really essential skills. I mean, they're important for school, um, certainly, and, and success in school, but also in life. That's very concerning to me. So I think, you know, there needs to be a massive worldwide public health campaign urging parents to postpone introducing babies and toddlers to screens, perhaps with the exception of video chatting with adults who are too far away, but, you know, who love them, grandparents, aunts, uncles, you know, whatever. Very interesting. I want to go back to fair play with your creation because I, I think that's really a testament to the work that you've been doing. And I, I can imagine you look back at that and think, wow, you know, we, we did we did it. We did some things. And in your book, you share some success stories, including around this educational video that you're talking about. I believe in collaboration with Disney, you were able to stop falsifying marketing Baby Einstein, is it, as an educational video? Yeah, it wasn't in collaboration with Giz Disney. It was... <laughs> I like how you corrected uh, that word. Whatever the opposite of collaboration <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> is. Yeah, we found a team of public health lawyers and a parent who was concerned about it to initiate or to announce that they were going to initiate a lawsuit against Disney for false and deceptive marketing for marketing baby Einstein videos, which were enormously popular as educational. What happened is that Disney came to the table and said that they were, would offer refunds for baby Einstein videos, but that we, my organization, could not say that it was because of a lawsuit. So that wasn't acceptable 
to us because all we had was our speech. You know, I mean, we didn't have a lot of money. We had our speech and, and we couldn't compromise our speech. So, so that was a whole awful conflict. And it ended up on the front page of the New York Times. That was really exciting. But yeah, it ended up on the front page of, of the New York Times. And as a result of that, we had to leave the Children's Mental Health Center and go off on our own, you know, which we did. That was very sad for me. I'd been there for 16 years. So um, we didn't know if we were going to survive, but people really came out of the work, woodwork to help us. Why did you have to leave? There were conversations between Disney and the health center, and I don't know, I wasn't privy to the conversation. Mm. You know, all I know is that we were asked to leave. Well, and so, you know, we did. You know, I mean, we were taking on this hugely powerful yeah. corporation. But it caught, it ended up costing Disney, it turns out, a lot of money. People were sending in those videos. You know, it turned up on all of these save money sites about how you could save money. You could turn in the videos. And years later, I was speaking at, at, at the American Library Association. A library librarian told me, that after you know that happened and people knew about the refund, people were stealing the videos from libraries <laughs> in, in order to sell them. Well, it, it also seems like you weren't afraid after that experience because I believe you guys went on to um, not collaborate, but <laughs> go, I don't know if it's go against, but with the NFL and even Google. So I think the courage that your or, yourself and the organization has really is a testament to your belief in this. Somebody's got to do it. That yeah. was my thinking. It might as well be us. So, Yeah. Well, so in your book, Raising Kids, or sorry, Who's Raising Your Kids? I pulled an excerpt out. It really spoke to me. So I want to read it and then get your commentary on it. So you say, in some ways, it's never been harder to be a parent. Even for families with adequate resources, you're dealing with a culture dominated by multinational corporations spending billions of dollars and using seductive technologies to bypass parents and target children directly with their messages designed sometimes, or sorry, with their messages designed to capture their hearts and minds. And their purpose is not to help kids lead healthy lives or to promote positive values or even to make their lives better. It's to generate profit. So, when I read that, again, this, this, this reality that the world I live in really came true because that all makes sense to me. Later on, you go to say there is still hope. And we've talked about there is still hope. There is hope. This can be changed. As parents who struggle, I want to go bring this in with a screen time. You talked about the data with toddlers and babies, but yet I, I still see it even with my seven-year-old. His self-regulation goes out the window if he's on the screen too long. So what can parents do? Let's specifically talk about these, these screens. We're, we're against everything in that quote. We also have these children who really want to get on these screens. What do you think we can start to do to help facilitate healthier conversations with our kids? You know, one thing is we're all addicted to our screens. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just kids, it's adults. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I certainly am. 
And, you know, it's not that, you know, the technology has done a lot of good things. All, all of that is true. But it's incredibly powerful. It's incredibly compelling. And it is addictive. And I think we have to remember that. And one of the things that parents need, need to do that is very, can be very hard for them is limit their time on screens when they're with their kids. And one thing that I've noticed when I've been around parents with babies these days is that it's hard for them because they don't have a television, right? They have their phones or a tablet. They don't have a landline. They don't have a camera. Everything is on their phone. And so that makes it really hard for parents. And I've noticed, I was with a family with a, a four-month-old the other day who really, you know, intend, you know, to not be showing her videos and things, be, you know, at least before she's two. But every time, you know, she started to notice the screens and she's drawn to them. Or, you know, at a restaurant, she sees television and she's drawn to that. It's, it's hard. But parents really need to think about their own screen time. And, and some things that families do is, for instance, make meals device-free. Nobody can bring a device to a meal. That's parents and kids. And to carve out screen-free, commercial-free time and space for kids and, and for families. You know, one night a week at least, do something that doesn't have to have a screen. If you can get outside with your kids, you know, if, and that's why it's important. I mean, city planning is important mm -hmm. if there are parks nearby for kids um, make sure that, that your kids have as much time as possible outside, you know, sing with them, dance with them. And also, I think as long as possible, postpone giving them, you know, devices with things aimed as, at, at kids. And for some parents, that's going to be easier. You know, it's hard if two parents don't agree on limiting screen time. That's hard. If you're in a community where you're the only one trying to limit screen time, that can be really challenging for kids. And I think when parents start out, like say like you have a, a child who's having a tantrum and kids do do that. You know, you're stressed, you're trying to cook dinner or whatever, your child's having hysterics. So you think just this once, I'm going to hand them a phone and it stops. And it does stop them. But it's important to remember that it's almost never just once. It's so compelling. And so I think, you know, as long as you can put that off, I think the better everybody will be. But I have just an enormous amount of sympathy for parents today. It's hard to raise children. You know, it's wonderful. It's deeply meaningful. It's incredibly joyful. It can also be very stressful and also boring. And I think that, you know, we need to acknowledge that and find ways, you know, to cope with that, that don't, you know, have to do with, 
resorting to devices. Yeah, I mean, it, it just making me think how in those situations where you say if you're cooking or a child's upset and you give them the device, when you look at it from the lens of it's preventing them from being able to cultivate that self-regulation, which is so key to, right. as we talked about school and beyond school life, I mean, to, to be able to regulate our emotions is critically important. And the other thing is that all of these apps, not all of them, but a lot of them, you know, this will keep your child from being bored. But boredom is really important Mm -hmm. because if you're experiencing boredom and you don't have a device handy, you need to find things in the world that are interesting or create your own amusements. And I I spent, you know, a lot of time watching kids when they're like waiting in a supermarket line or some department store. And if you watch them, they start doing things like they start walking funny or hopping around or making things up. I mean, kids play comes naturally to neurotypical kids. And so if they have the opportunity if they have the time, the space, the silence, you know, the inspiration, then then they play, you know, they're, they're wired to be able to play. And, you know, I think this really comes like a full circle to perhaps a big reason why you're so determined as an activist to highlight these key issues is because I know you do a lot of work with creative play. I mean, it, that's where you started, started your career. If you were in a group, you probably have been in these groups, but say you're in a, a group or a presentation in front of a whole bunch of parents like myself, if you had to give a talk or a, a presentation on cultivating creative play for children, what would be some key messages that you would say to these parents as we navigate this device world? But these, this would be around how do we allow or, or set the environment so that kids can go back to that natural environment of creatively? One thing is the best toys are 90% child and only 10% toys. Mm, that's great. Only ten, the best toys are 90% child and only 10% toy. The best toys, the toys that really facilitate creative play, just lie there until a child picks it up and does something with it. That made my whole body feel good. (laughs) Oh, good. Yeah. So when you're thinking about toys, you know, for your children, think about toys that, that can be used lots of different ways. And think about toys that don't do anything on their own. Toys that talk, that make sounds, that move on their own deprive children of being able to make up the conversation, experiment with different sounds, move the toy themselves. And so they they deprive children of opportunities for creativity and for agency. And yet the best-selling toys are often toys that talk, chirp, beep, you know, on their own. You know, it's funny because these toys are marketed as being interactive, but they're not really interactive. I mean, the toy is acting and the child is reacting. I mean, to, you know, blocks are, are interactive, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, because, it, you know, the child, the block has a property. It's a square. It's a cone of something. That's what the block brings. And the child gets to decide what to do with it, where to put it, how to use it, what it is. You know, is a cone a microphone or is it a hat or is it an ice cream cone? I mean, who knows? It can be anything. And that's, you know, what children need. And they need it from when when they're young because that's when their brains are growing and developing. That's so important. Oh my gosh. It's just, yeah, it's critically important. And to think that these companies intentionally know that they're basically robbing a child of that with what they're trying to get them so addicted to, it's, it's really heartbreaking. The thing is that toys that, that encourage creativity, they're not lucrative mm-hmm. because a child can use them over and over and over again in different ways. So if your primary goal is profit, it's really better, you know, to give them a toy that's only can be used one way. And what happens is then, you know, kids get bored with that toy and they want something else. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've come home or my wife's come home from Costco with probably too many things because that's another topic of buying (laughs) But they give you these boxes and my kids just love these boxes. They've been like forts, they've been cars, they've been pretend cat beds. And it actually brings me joy to see that. And the last few years, we, we've started camping as a family. During COVID, we decided to start camping. And it's just been amazing to see the art kids and other kids who we in the campsite just use sticks, grass, dirt hills as, to your point, multi-different things. I just can, from my observations, this is not rooted in any sort of research, but like the regulation that they seem to have at the end of a 12-hour camping day outside is greater than if I give my child a game for an hour and a half on the iPad. You know, actually what research does suggest is that kids play more creatively in green space. Mm -hmm. That's your point about urban planning. Yeah, that's right. You know, and and the other thing that I, I think it's important for parents and all of us really to understand is one thing that corporations are very good at is looking at the failures in society and then creating things that supposedly solve that problem. And so, you know, we don't have universal childcare in this country. We've got a lot of very stressed parents. And so, you know, what the corporations can do is provide videos that will give parents a chance to go off and do things, you know, on their own that will occupy their child. That's an example. Or, you know, we've got schools where failing, we've got failing schools or schools where, you know, there are problems. And so what the corporations can do is hand out Chromebooks or or iPads, even to kindergartners who really shouldn't be doing much on screens anyway. So that, that works, you know, what it does is, you know, creates brand loyalty for the children. It doesn't solve the fundamental problem. And the idea what the corporations are saying is that these ed tech 
companies can create materials that can replace parents and can, that can replace teachers. Kids learn best with teachers who know them and care about them. Yeah, that human connection, it is essential. I see the time here. I feel like I can talk to you all day from both <laughs> the lens of trying to be a, a host of a podcast and a parent. I feel like that's the majority of my lens today. Susan, as we come to an end here, the message really has been around your life's work, which is spanning decades. But in around this the latest book, Who's Raising the Kids? What message would you have for our audience? It's never been harder to be a parent than it is today because of, you know, these huge corporations, these huge, huge tech companies that are really doing everything they can to become between you and your children. Nobody's a perfect parent and being a perfect parent around technology is really hard, but try the best you can. If you do a lot of tech stuff with your family, try doing less. If you have babies, try postponing getting them, you know, to do things on devices. I mean, and and remember that you and your children, you all need time, space, silence, inspiration to to interact with each other to be able to dream and play on your own and to, you know, explore the world. Do the best you can. Mm, Thank you for that. That is a really eloquent final statement. I could could feel the activist of you and the psychologist of you coming in there. And (laughs) that was, that was really good. And so my final question, which there, there might be a lot of similarities in the answer, but I've asked the last 150 people on my podcast this question. Let's imagine now that you're, you're at end of life, however old that is, it is. And you're sitting on a front porch looking out at something somewhere that brings you total peace, ease, and contentment. And you decide to write a letter to your children's children on what you learned about cultivating a happy and healthy relationship with money, what would be a theme to that letter? Whoa, okay. Given where the world is today and where we are with artificial intelligence and how rapidly it's developing and you know the move towards social robots, which we haven't even really talked about, but which, is, which are already in existence and are gonna get more powerful. I think it would be to take pleasure in the people around you, have empathy, remember that machines aren't people, they can't love you, and and value the natural world and try to experience it and protect it from destruction. Thank you for that. This is a great answer. That's a hard question. (laughs) (laughs) I hope it was okay. It was wonderful. Susan, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to chat with me and our audience. For people who are listening, I'm sure many, many are intrigued. 
where they can find more information about you, your books, where would you point them towards? My website is susanlin.net. And Who's Raising the Kids is coming out in paperback. It'll be out in September in paperback. And you can buy it at your local bookstore or at bookshop.com or wherever you buy books. It should be available. Yeah, I will link to that and your website in the show notes. Okay. You might want to take a look at fairplayforkids.com. I'll include that as well. Which is, you know, the activist organization that is working very hard to protect children from being exploited by big tech. Well, thank you for the work you're doing. It's needed and for sharing today. I really appreciate you joining. Thank you for listening this week. If you're still listening, perhaps you found that conversation as insightful as I did. If that's the case, you can help support the show in two ways. You can head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you get the next episode automatically. And while you're there, you can leave a rating and review. I'd greatly appreciate that. Until next time, have yourself a great week. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sea.